Hello, thank you for joining me today to learn about social determinants of health with Dr. Annalyn Conklin. Dr. Conklin is a social epidemiologist who studies how diseases like obesity and heart disease are shaped by economic and social factors and how these intersect with gender. Her diverse training experiences include a postdoc at UCLA on social policy and global health, a PhD in epidemiology from Cambridge, and a master's in public health from Columbia University. Dr. Conklin is currently an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia right here in Vancouver, where she leads a research program to support healthy aging and reduce heart health inequities in Canadian women. This episode challenges the popular view that we are each fully in charge and fully responsible for our health. In reality, our health is deeply influenced by many factors, from education to physical environment to food security to social networks and much more. Today, we also talk about how those factors exert their influence and why this can often differ between men and women. I hope this conversation brings you a greater awareness and understanding of the forces that shape your health and prompts you to rethink the individualist mindset. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Conklin. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you're a social epidemiologist. Can you explain exactly what that is? I can do my best. (laughs) So a social epidemiologist is someone who studies population health, but specifically studies how broader factors related to the environment influence the health of a population. So often that could be things like the built environment. So green spaces, Mm -hmm. how do green spaces influence the morbidity or the mortality of a given population, for example. I am particularly interested in economic and social factors. So Commonly, we think of education, income levels, wealth. Those are more your economic factors. And then more recently, my work's been on the social relationships that people have. And there's multiple different types. So marital status being the most prominent and most perhaps obvious and well-studied, but also participating in activities, social activities. That is part of your social environment. That's your social context. A social epidemiologist is interested In those pieces, how does our broader environment influence our health in terms of population health? So another definition we should probably get on the table is the term social determinants of health, since we're going to be using that a lot. So can you kind of break that down? And I know there's multiple different levels there, but maybe at the highest level and start there. So again, I mean, social epidemiologists would be interested in the social determinants of health, very much so. And there are different types. And again, as you say, there's different levels. So SDOH or social determinants is a broad, broad term that encompasses a whole lot of different literatures that all fall within this big umbrella of the environmental influences on the health of groups. That can be things like political influences, so policy and law. So for example, you know, we have a huge international framework on tobacco control. Does that improve people's health as a policy lever, right? That is a question of social determinants of health. 
most of the literature, I would say, has tended to focus on pieces like our education, individual education and individual income as very strong social determinants of health, meaning it's not your individual psychology and it is not your individual biology. It is things that are outside of you as a person, as an individual that can influence you in terms of your health and then groups that you belong to, like your neighborhood or your country or whatever. I hope that kind of explains it. I mean, it's a huge area, of course. No, that's great. I've been exploring ChatGPT recently. And so I asked ChatGPT for an answer for what the social determinants of health are. And they gave me something like eight categories, socioeconomic status, physical environment, social support networks, education, employment, working conditions, healthcare access and services, behavioral lifestyle factors, gender or cultural factors. How did ChatGPT do? I would say yes to all those except the behavioralness, perhaps so much. Actually, the behaviors would be part of the pathway, perhaps, but behaviors are individual. If it was, say, gym memberships and subsidized gym memberships, that is a social determinant. Mm -hmm. But just physical activity per se, that's a behavioral determinant, not a social determinant. Right. So all of those are right. Yes, some of them I would probably put under the general umbrella of economic social determinants of health. Some of them are physical social determinants of health. Some of them are social, social determinants of health. But the word social determinant is, I wouldn't just focus on the social piece. It just means anything really like outside of you as a person that is going to influence your health. You could say environmental determinants of health if you want. I guess the overarching theme of the conversation I want to have today is what is wrong with this mindset that health is all up to you and the choices that you make and that you're totally on the hook for everything to do with your health? Because that's the message that I see all the time in social media. You just need better willpower. You just need this. You just need that. So I just wanted to start opening the door on that question and get your thoughts. It's interesting because recently, I think it was a Canadian, I don't know if it was a Canadian prime minister or a minister with the last name Lalonde, who actually instigated and initiated a very famous report out of Ottawa that established initially this concept of social determinants, in fact. So Canada should in some ways be proud of its history that we were sort of at the forefront of this idea that health is not individual. And I think the problem with it is first, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. This idea of choice is sort of devoid of the idea that we live in a society and we don't necessarily choose the resources that we have access to. We don't necessarily choose the infrastructure that is part of our world. Some people have the luxury of moving and they can move to a location where they have easy access to healthcare. They have easy access to amazing food and the availability of food, but some people simply don't just based on where they live and where they were born. That is what they have access to. And that will very strongly determine their health outcomes. So I would say what's wrong with it is there is evidence to the contrary. There is an incredible body of evidence to the contrary. So it just doesn't hold up scientifically. And I think conceptually it's problematic because the assumption of that kind of messaging is that we all live in our own milieu, in our own bubbles, and that we aren't social, right? That it just presumes that we all operate as solo, isolated, siloed living beings, which is just simply not the case. That's not the reality. So I think the other part is that just conceptually, it's 
false and is based on a false assumption and maybe an idealistic view of maybe where people would like us to be, perhaps. You know, I don't know if we want to be that isolated as we've just experienced. It's not pleasant. I guess it's pretty easy to poke holes into it, but why is that view so pervasive? I mean, I can understand how someone trying to sell you something maybe might be motivated to tell you it's all in your hands, but maybe what else is going on there? Why that's such a dominant narrative? Because it's easier. It's easier for governments, to be perfectly honest. It means that governments don't have to actually take the responsibility that they really do have and is the whole point of government, really, to be honest, to offer good housing to everyone, to offer a living wage to everyone, to provide the public goods, clean water, sanitation, roads. Those are public goods and they are part of the environment that enable us to choose, quote unquote, a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, And it's much easier for governments to say it's on the individual because then they don't have to invest. They don't have to take the responsibility that many of them ironically have acknowledged in various reports, including this Lalonde report that I was referencing, which is a very famous one from 1979. I know that might seem very cynical, but that I think is truly the reason. And then of course, from maybe industry perspective, it's easier to market an individual's choice, right? It's easier to market to that. You make more sales if it's to an individual, right? There's a lot of economic forces and economic determinants that determine this, I guess, narrative that it's an individual choice. I'm not saying that it's not there. Of course, we do make choices. But a lot of times also, I think something that we're coming to better appreciate is that a lot of what might have been seen as choices vis-a-vis health are not choices that we make from an executive function kind of point of view, that our brain is actively cognitively making a choice. Actually, a lot of what we do, a lot of our behaviors, our health behaviors are just automatic and they bypass that part of the brain, which again kind of goes back to that idea of the environment, that if your environment is giving certain triggers to your biology, to your body, that is primed to respond in a certain way, and perhaps, for example, that might lead to excess adiposity. That isn't a choice. That's actually just your biology responding to your environment that we have evolved to have, which in the past was clearly extremely beneficial. We survived as a species. Mm -hmm. But our environment's very different now than it was a thousand, a hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, I know you just got back from an obesity summit. And from following this field from the outside, I hear this message a lot about we're sort of maladapted to today's food environment. Is that a big part of the discussion? Yeah, certainly. Well, a big part of the discussion at the summit actually was more things like weight bias and how much weight bias there is in society writ large, but also in healthcare and how that really influences treatment, how it leads to people not having proper treatment or having effective treatment simply because of bias, right? Implicit bias. And there's all kinds of bias. We have weight bias. We have gender bias, racial bias. I mean, there's a lot of biases in everyone, whether we realize it or not. It's just some of us hopefully are a little bit more sensitive and active to trying to at least uncover that bias and mitigate it in as much as we can. But that was a part of it for sure. And I think one of the things I do appreciate about the summit and about Obesity Canada is the understanding and the recognition that obesity is a chronic illness. 
I often see in the literature that it is sort of lumped together with other behaviors like physical activity and diet. I would argue it is not the same. It's not a lifestyle choice. And I think it's problematic when people are publishing articles where they've classified it in that way, especially using the language of lifestyle choice. So, you know, it's a complex illness. Yes, part of it is influenced by energy in, energy out. But I would also argue that is one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is that it's a neuroendocrine disease. And I think it might be a combination of those pieces. I think we haven't quite understood the symphony between those, but hormones are a large part of it. And I think certainly sex hormones are a big deal in terms of how weight changes and the weight distribution that we have as females as we age with changes in hormones is very clear in my mind. That's not a choice. (laughs) I hear you on that one. Not really a choice. Do you know Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford? She's an obesity medicine physician in the States. And I did interview her, I think it was last year. We talked about weight bias and obesity as a disease. So I'm definitely helping to raise awareness on that as much as I can. Good. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I'm (laughs) sure she was much better at talking about that than I am, but that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I think that kind of the fact that not everyone is fully on board with that and that it still sometimes comes out, at least in the medical literature, as a lifestyle choice just reinforces the point that you started off with, which is this idea that there's a lot of emphasis on individual responsibility around health and health outcomes and that you just need more willpower. You can have all the willpower in the world, but if you live in a location that is, at least in the States, that it's a food desert and you don't have much money and you don't have much time to travel two hours to go to the local farmer's market, well, yeah, is that a choice? Probably not. I would say no, not from a public health point of view. That's the social determinants. I think this would be a good chance to hear a bit more about your research and just kind of bring some of the mechanisms to life. And so what are some concrete examples of connections we see between specific social factors and health outcomes and how might those actually be playing out? Well, I'll touch broadly on a lot of my background. I won't just focus on the recent stuff, but one of the key things I found, at least in my dissertation, was that difficulty paying bills or not having enough money for food or clothing And if that was a frequent experience for you as a self-reported frequently, you know, you had very frequent difficulty paying bills, that was very strongly linked to both central adiposity based on waist circumference and general adiposity based on BMI, body mass index, and particularly so for females, for older women. I had a data set of older people, 50 plus, and so... I didn't exactly explore mechanisms per se. I think that there may be a direct effect, meaning that what is happening in our social environment or our economic environment might directly impact our health through physiological stress responses. So through the HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and recently from the summit, I would add gonadal and pituitary and thyroid axis. That's like the proper hormonal axes. Can I interject just to probe a little bit about the mechanisms? Of course. So when we talk about the link between some social factor and adiposity, is this generally the case that you're asking 
does such and such factor independently of caloric intake influence adiposity or is such and such factor driving calorie intake? Good question. I have found that these factors are independent of many of the factors that we normally think of physical activity, sedentary behavior, smoking, tobacco, alcohol, and diet. So yes, most of my analyses, I've what we call adjusted for energy intake, for physical activity. So for all of those kind of behavioral pieces, so there is a residual effect. There is something happening over and above all these other factors that you would think of. More so in the women than in the men. When I do adjust for those things, sometimes those main relationships disappear in the men, which would suggest that for men, it is possible that in some associations you're looking at, that the link is there simply because it's operating through, for example, diet or physical activity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it's really important to look at women and men separately, because I think the same social level factors, be it economic or literally social ties, each one of those is going to have a different effect on a different health outcome. And the effect will be unique, I think, to women versus men. And I think the mechanisms are different. That is an area where we just, we really need to do more research and more nuanced research. I think we have the bigger picture ideas. So we know things like income inequality. We know now very clearly, I think, from the literature, both in developing countries, developed countries, that inequality in income, whether it's absolute or relative, has an impact on mortality. It has an impact on health. And I'm pretty certain the literature is very established when it comes to obesity as an outcome. And we know a lot also about education, but we don't know so much about a lot of the other social determinants, like things like just difficulty paying bills. You can have a high income and still be struggling to pay your bills or to have enough money for food. It seems odd, but it is possible. There's so much to our social worlds, right? There's a lot of detail that often just gets sometimes simplified for very clear reasons, but then we lose sight really of messages that could be helpful for future either interventions or policies. So certainly that difference between women and men, I think, is really important trying to understand mechanisms and how these things influence us. Yeah, well, it sounds like stress is definitely one of the mechanisms and driving changes in biology and that the way that a female will respond to stress is different than the way from a biological man's biology will respond. Yeah, I would say so. And how and to what extent or even why, I mean, that's where the fun stuff is and where all the new research hopefully is going to unpack some of that. And the same stressor may feel more or less stressful to a different person, right? I was just chatting with my husband about the state of our front lawn, which bothers him a lot more than it bothers me, or maybe loss of job. I know you did some work in that could impact mm. someone differently depending on how they felt about their social responsibility and their identity and things like that. Yeah, that certainly is a whole other level. Certainly. Okay. I mean, I think that's an area I'd love to at least have the data for is how do we understand each person's psychological state and how, depending on your affect, your psychology, 
how the social determinants then influence the health. Because of course, it comes through our psychology and our biology. Mm -hmm. And we interpret the outside world based on our assumptions, our beliefs, our lived experiences, our biases. I mean, that's a whole other area, but I think we just haven't really explored that because it's really hard to get that kind of data. Often the psychology stuff is in one camp and then the social determinants is in another camp. And it's unusual to find, unless you create your own data set, of course, which is a whole other can of worms. But yeah, I guess the general thing you've got me thinking about is how the context is going to matter in terms of how a given factor influences someone. And so it's, you need really large, really multifactorial data sets to address these kinds of questions. Absolutely. And looking at combinations of factors. So looking at income and social ties or looking at education and marital status. And often the focus has just been on the one and sort of ignoring the rest or adjusting for the rest. But, you know, it's done for analytic reasons, simplifying it. But I think we need to make our analyses a bit more sophisticated to reflect the complexity of our lives. So what are some of your calls to action that you'd like to share both in mindset and in actual actions as people like me and other listeners become more aware of the role that social factors play in health outcomes? I mean, I guess the first call to action is really trying to undo the narrative of the individual responsibility. I think all of us can play a part in just being more vocal that actually it's not. It's about housing. It's about infrastructure. It's about the wider society. So what is that society that we want to create? What is the society that we need for everybody to be living a healthy life? And so I think everyone can be vocal about that as soon as you hear someone kind of say, oh, it's your choice or this or that. It's like, well, no, maybe it's not. (laughs) There's that piece, I think. Yeah. Less judgment, more empathy, more bigger picture thinking. I think bigger picture thinking. Yeah, absolutely, Chana. That comes easier for some people than others. But empathy is a way to see someone else's life from their perspective, which then could hopefully open up your own perspective. But I think just there's always another side to the story, I think. There's always something else behind the scene that may not be visible, but is probably there and is relevant, at least to that person. You know, it may not be relevant to you, but it's going to be relevant to them and their health. I would also like to see people have more empathy for themselves and their own situations. I saw some studies suggesting that shame and guilt are not good motivators and I think there's a lot of shame and guilt in this culture that we're falling short of ideals and we're blaming ourselves for it. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, that's huge, isn't it? I think I'm certainly guilty of that. I think I did read that recently about just it's not good, you know, if you want to influence your child's behavior, that shame and guilt, they're definitely not the way to go long term because that then just promotes really unhealthy behaviors later on when they're adults. Mm -hmm. And then they become very defensive to criticism (laughs) because, of course, why wouldn't you if you've been shamed and guilted when you were a child? So, you know, more positive, like, here, let me show you how it would be great to do it this way, you know, and positive stuff, which takes a lot of patience. But I think I'm digressing there. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. I'm on a tangent. That's funny. I'm also always thinking about the parenting implications of these things and how to set up my kids for success. So I'm glad you touched on that. So, you know, in your everyday life, so, and I think one of your questions to me is, 
in some ways, how would my expertise outside of work influence my life? Well, I'm very cognizant of the importance of social connections. So trying to make a point of maintaining existing relationships, valuing the investment in those relationships. So be it family members or even just colleagues and peers that are friendly acquaintances. It is an investment and it's an investment in your health by actually getting together with your friends. Right. And so when you think of it that way, that's very different than just saying, oh God, I got to go out to this party. I feel obligated. It's like, well, no, actually, if it's going to make you live longer, heck yeah, let's go to parties. I love that. It reframes it, I think. And that I think can be useful for the more introverted folks out there who would maybe prefer to stay home, prefer to be alone. There's benefit in getting out and being social, whatever that means for you. It doesn't necessarily mean going to a party. It could just be going to get together with a friend on the beach or something, whatever it means to you. But social connections are really, really important. Some of these social factors you can't control, but other ones you can steer yourself in the right direction. You can, yeah. And then you can see there's value in them, right? There's actually health value in them. There is health value in education, in being educated. Yes, absolutely. It's not just a tedious task that's going to get you a job, which of course is a good thing too, because job means income and income is also important for your health. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, this really is a broad view of healthy decision-making, right? Yes, absolutely. I guess that's how I would say that my work sort of influences my life outside of research and writing papers. So lots of ways of supporting your health beyond exercise and diet, just ways to position yourself. Exactly. That makes sense. I like that. So to close, do you have any recommended resources for people who want to learn more about this topic and your work as well? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot out there. (laughs) I would probably recommend... If people are really interested or they just want a little bit more information, the best place would be to look on the website of WHO, which is the World Health Organization. And they have an entire section dedicated to social determinants of health. They give a nice definition. They'll give examples. It will be in that global context, so there will be a lot of reference more to perhaps developing country contexts, but it will hopefully give readers a general sense of what it is. And there was a very famous commissioned report by WHO quite a few years ago now by Sir Michael Marmot, who is one of the leading researchers in the United Kingdom in this field, and he really spearheaded this field. He did a lot of the work on inequality especially income inequality amongst British civil servants and demonstrated very strong, consistent relationships there. So that would be a general place I would go to. And then if people are interested in my work, I'm pretty much on the internet. If you Google search my name, which is pretty original, A-N-N-A-L-I-J-N, Conklin, C-O-N-K-L-I-N, and UBC, that you'll see some websites with my lab I have a Google Scholar page with a lot of my recent papers. Most of my papers are broadly in this field on different areas, especially the social ties. I'll give one more resource, which is perhaps a little bit more, I guess, towards a lay audience and is actually more of a charity aimed at trying to connect people who are socially isolated. It's by a colleague of mine, Amy Peacock, and it's called 
Beyond the Conversation. Hmm, Thank you for that. It's a charity that is aimed at trying to connect people and to help address social isolation. So those are a couple of resources where you could find more. Well, thank you for sharing this wealth of information and food for thought about thinking about health more broadly, both for yourself and others. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really exciting and happy to share. 